0: trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit multrimobile.com.
1: This is the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new, single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Before actually I get into um, today's guest and today's episode, I want to take a minute to just shout out all the parents out there. Um, For many of us, uh, our kids are either back in school or they're getting ready to go back to school, and it, uh, for me, uh, my daughter, just started kindergarten this year. So today I got to experience uh, the bus and the pickup and the drop off and all that. And my daughter's a little shy. So like something like getting on the bus is a, is a big deal and she gets nervous. You know, there's a lot of people she doesn't know. And today um, you know, we almost had to like bribe her uh, to get her on the bus um, with some, some rewards, assuming that that all went well. And, And thankfully due to some wonderful neighbors and some other kids in our neighborhood she got on uh with no issues but it's hard to believe that and i'm sure a lot of parent excuse me parents feel this way um you know just when when you send your kids off to school i mean it's uh it's a big day uh at least for me it was so you know not only that just trying to get the kids out of their the summer routine and get them back into you know going to school uh, is a chore in and of itself, so shout out to all the parents that are, are currently dealing with that or are sending your kids to school for this uh, for the first time. Um, kudos to you guys! So, on to your regularly scheduled programming. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the Average Conservationist podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, today on the podcast, I have George Kathy, and George is the owner and founder of Two Percent Certified Oxbow Ecological Engineering. Um, <clears throat> George and I get to have just a, a wonderful conversation. Um, you guys will notice in George's tone of voice right from the get go the enthusiasm, the passion that he has for what he does, and essentially um, as an engineer. Um, He is using um, engineering, various engineering practices uh, in the wildlife to help, you know, with all sorts of um, riparian and and restoration projects, you know, wetlands, um, river restoration. I mean, just a, a whole slew of things, and you know, inherently, what George is doing through Oxbow is conservation. Um, we get to talk about. You know, George really kind of lucked out from a, a career standpoint um, after graduating with his master's in engineering, um, a job that he didn't even know existed. Um, he found through Ducks Unlimited and, and really got his start into the workforce and, you know, just acquired a, a ton of great real world experience um, in this field of ecological engineering and, um, Jump ship after about five years. Worked with another uh, engineering firm, and really, after another five years there, just felt that he had, you know, gained enough experience to to step out on his own and, and start his own company, uh, which was ten years ago now. So, it's uh, you know the the work that he's doing um, is is so important for you know so many different habitats and species and, and George certainly touches on, on all of that throughout the course of the episode. Um, it's just, uh, we talk about it a lot, but it's just, it's, it's very, um, inspiring hearing how passionate he is about what he's doing, um, and, and the positive, uh, effects and impact, uh, lasting positive impact that it's having on the outdoors, um, is something I think we can all take away from the conversation, um, and really kind of help motivate us, um, you know to to keep doing more to keep doing you know whatever it is that we can. So episode one seventeen with George Kathy uh, enjoy uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by my friends over at Go Hunt. If you haven't already, uh, now is the perfect time to download your Explorer membership. Be ready for the season, um, even if you're just hunting locally uh, on some public land in your state sign up for the Explorer membership. It's $50. You're going to get all 50 states. There's nothing else out there like that. And if you use code average, um, you're going to save 20%. uh, And then you're also going to get $20 to use towards their gear shop. So uh, a great opportunity. Um, And with that $20 for the gear shop, I mean, Go Hunt has everything that a hunter needs from start to finish um, in terms of their journey, uh, you know, into the field. Um, So you can definitely be sure to put that money to good use. So, head over to gohunt.com and again, sign up for that explorer membership. All right, Mr. George Cathy, welcome to the podcast. How's everything going today?
2: Pretty good Marcus. <laughs>
1: no. We uh I'm glad that we're we're doing this for well for a couple of reasons. One, um, because I am certainly excited to to hear more about the company, but we had um, I'm going to take this time to apologize because I was um, a bit tardy in some responses on some emails and we had to reschedule this. Um, and then we ran into some technical difficulties, some timing issues on my end this morning here. Um, but thankfully, uh, we're here. We're, I'm excited to do this. Yeah, me too. So <clears throat> George, before we, we get into your company here, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself?
2: I'm um, sure. Um, I guess just like going way back, like, yeah, go always
1: start at the beginning.
2: Yeah, start at the beginning. Um, so before I even knew when I was in my infancy, um, my parents, uh, had me and my younger brother out in the outdoors. Um, I was, I was really lucky, lucky yeah, family that prioritized the outdoors. And so we were out in it constantly. That was our, our free time. was spent in the outdoors. And um, particularly, like my dad was was like an r- outdoor renaissance man. Me and my brother liked to call him. dude but like, he loves fly fishing, tied his own flies. He he liked hunting, dang or anything, and he he like rolled his own ammo. Um, so he was a great mentor. Um, and then I grew up in Farmington, New Mexico, which is in the Four Corners region, kind of where Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Arizona meet. Right. Um, tons of public land out there. Um, and, and tons of cool outdoor opportunities. And he had us out in the field early and often. Um, and, and so my first memories were, uh, I don't know if you've heard like the San One river, uh, runs through Farmington, but actually if you go upstream away, there's the quality water section, okay. which is just some amazing fire fishing, like big, big trout. Um, um, they're going after tiny, tiny flies. It's fun stuff. But he had us out there when we were like five or six and we'd go to Walmart and get these disposable, we call them trash bag waders, but they're like single use. They were popping holes in them before you even got to the river. (laughs) And um, we'd stand there like semi hypothermic the whole time and just loving it. Um, So he had us out there and like, he taught us the intangibles of like outdoors and stuff like, having your pickup truck tastefully lifted, <laughs> and and like he was into making, making lists and kits, man. That's what I took away. Like I still do that, make lists and kits and, and then like eating canned meats and stuff, like the good stuff. And me and my brother were hooked. So like, that's kind of like the foundation for of uh, at least me in the outdoors, just love the outdoors. And me and my brother have kind of gone or kind of expanded on that and carried the torch to our own family from there. So,
1: yeah, no, that's, that's an incredible story. I love to hear um, the upbringing that people have um, a- a- as far as like how it pertains to the outdoors and, you know, what that looked like, because everyone's different. I mean, I- I've certainly throughout the course of the podcast spoken to a lot of people who, you know, much like yourself and, and myself is they were introduced at an early age, right? And they just, it's just, so, it's, it's all that they know, uh, you know, the outdoors and whether it's hunting and fishing or just, you know, camping and backpacking, that's, that's just all they know. And but to hear your story and to refer to your dad as kind of a renaissance man of the outdoors, I think is just awesome. And those those things that you learn as a kid in that setting, it's it's funny how you know maybe at the time you don't realize it or maybe appreciate it as much, but it's when you get much older in life that you start to think back on those and you're like, ah, what a way to live growing up, right?
2: Oh, no kidding. And I, and I look at that now, I got two little boys, one's 11 and one's eight. And I think about that all the time. Like the times my dad took me and my brother out and like, he was probably, probably busy doing other things and like took the time out. Like, cause we were always half of them to get us out in the woods or fishing. And, and, and the fact that he took the time to get us out there, it's, I think we both, me and my brother really appreciate Now I'm like carrying the torch uh, with my kids too. Um, trying to get them out as much as possible.
1: Yeah. Now you were talking about, <clears throat> um, fishing on the San Juan, um, when you were younger now, w- uh, my geography, especially in that, that part of the country is, is not the best, <laughs> but is the Caneos, is that anywhere near where you grew up or, you know, even close? I know it's Southern Colorado. I, cause I, have fished it before, but I didn't know what there or where that was kind of in relation to, to where you grew up.
2: Oh man. So the Caneos is awesome. Like it's, so it's due east i think because we're we're in far northwest
1: right okay i think
2: the Kanehos is just just ways it's not too far east i don't think but you gotta get in there from farmington is it's a circuitous route but yeah i love the canajos like in fact and we could get to this later but when i was in college we, we'd rally up there and fish the canejos a lot it's pretty pretty country up there
1: oh it's gorgeous so we would um we, we can tell some stories. I mean, we got time here, but we would, um, as a family, we would drive up from Michigan, um, and pull like a little fifth wheel camper all the way to Southern Colorado. And we would, you know, we had like a, you know, just a little public campground that we would stay at. And it was probably, I mean, it was on the Caneos or very close in proximity, but we were probably only 20 miles North of the New Mexico border where we were at. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some areas in there that they called the pinnacles where they just, you know, just, you know, sheer rock. You could only float it. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't get in there, um, you know, just wading it or anything like that. But I, some of my fondest memories, I mean, this is when I was probably 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, I think is, we went out there two summers in a row to the same spot and just, I mean, that's really what, what hooked me with fly fishing was, was fishing the Kaneos, that's that kind of that Southern region of of Colorado there. It's just, you're right. It's absolutely gorgeous.
2: Oh man. That is unbelievable. Yeah, no, I know. I love the Chineos. And in fact, like I'm wondering, like, so me and my family, like me and my cousins and aunts and uncles, like we're all of the same mind. Like we were camping and fishing with each other since before we knew better. Um, but me and my cousins have actually carried out traditions of, uh, we have a family reunion every year and it's in Southern Colorado. And we just kind of roll around, Southern Colorado and Northern New Mexico finding group sites. And like a couple years ago, we, I think it was the Magot site. Um, I think it might be in New Mexico, but we, we had a family union right there on the Coneo and fished and it, it was, it, that's, that's good country up there. I'm, I'm excited that that's where you got your introduction to fly fishing. Cause there's not too many other, not too many cooler places than that.
1: Yeah. And I had, you know, certainly fly fished in Michigan and whatnot here before that. But it was—I mean, we have some some really great um, fisheries and and, and waterways and, and things like that here. But that was my first like out west experience, you know, with oh, sweet. really you know fishing fishing uh, in areas that that took some skill, some finesse. I mean, I remember uh, I've told this story a few times on the podcast, but you know, in Colorado, um, the if you own the land, you have the mineral rights um, to the water that that flows through your land. So someone had like at this, you know, local gas station or convenience store or something near the the campground we were staying at said, Hey, there's this rancher just down the road. Like, you know, you literally go knock on his door, you know, tell him that, you know, you just like to fish the water on his property. You pay him like five bucks, like a rod and he'll, (laughs) he'll let you fish his land. He, you know, he's very, very cool with that. So I was like, so my dad was like, yeah, so I think, you know, but you know, Marcus, you and I are going to go do that one day. I said, yeah, sounds great. So his whole thing was he was just going to let me fish. He was going to like, you know, just point stuff out to me, take a bunch of pictures and just, you know, kind of soak it up. Just, just enjoy watching me fish for the day. And this is kind of a two prong story. So the first is, you know, we're hiking back in and this, you know, the, the river that runs through his property. I mean, it's only probably shoot 15, maybe 20 yards wide. Probably not even, it's a pretty small stream, right? Right. So a lot of casting upstream and, and working back towards you know working back back towards you. And we got into this one little stretch. the, the woods had kind of broken. it kind of opened up into a meadow and you could see these <clears throat> these fish just kind of stacked on top of each other in this one little riffle. Um, it was probably only gosh, a foot deep and the water's crystal clear. so you can see the fish. So we're back about 20 yards or so and he's like, all right, just you know cast it up in front of them, let it work back to him. And I don't even remember what fly we had on, but he had a a, a decent amount of whatever whatever pattern it was in his um, in his fly box. And I successfully broke off every single one that he had trying to catch these fish. I was just, you know, I'd set the hook, I'd have him on, then I'd horse it, or, you know, I'd drop the rod tip. I, I, I was making a lot of rookie mistakes, essentially. And it was, like, in hindsight, like, I think we landed maybe, like, two out of the, the large group that were in there. But, I mean, I probably broke off six, flies i would say in the course of about 15 minutes right however long it takes to to retie one back on maybe put some new tippet on anything like that and then all the pictures that he thought he was taking he ended up not having uh an actual roll of film in his camera so we get back all the way back to michigan and he like opens up his camera and he's like son of a bitch right like what the heck happened here so yeah some some funny things happened uh on that four or five hours of fishing alone <laughs> that really makes me um think about the Kaneos.
2: yeah and it's like i could feel for your dad too having boys like i've kind of whenever they're fishing i kind of become the guide like i've stopped trying to fish while they're fishing just to get a little more zinned out because <laughs> you got to be present man you got to be able to be tying flies on constantly and getting birds nests untangled. and
1: yeah you're essentially you know. a guide right
2: exactly exactly
1: so growing up, um, in New Mexico and then what happens, you know, when you get, do you, know, where do you decide to go to college? What is, what does like life, excuse me, what does life look like as you got older?
2: Yeah. Oh, that's, so that's a great question there. So that's what's so fun about this podcast is you don't typically think back on all this stuff. Yeah.
1: But,
2: and I was, I was, I think so like me becoming an engineer. Like I took an aptitude test in seventh grade. And before then I I was pretty certain I was going to be a wildlife biologist. just loved animals. Yeah. I took this aptitude test and like, I kind of was plugging in stuff where I like the outdoors and I like math and science and it just sped out civil engineers. So I like took it back to my dad and I was like, so what's this all about? And he's like, you know, your uncle is a civil engineer. And at the time, my uncle was, like, one of my heroes. He was my dad's, like, fishing partner and hunting partner. So I was like, shoot, my uncle's legit. So this must be legit. <laughs> so suddenly from seventh grade, like, I was dialed. I was like, I'm going to be a civil engineer. And and sure as heck, I went to college, um, got a scholarship to the University of New Mexico there in Albuquerque. And um, I got a bachelor's and a master's there, and, like, my thinking like that's my best route to like have a good job and be outdoors um but as i like got into engineering and and particularly environmental engineering within civil i noticed there was still ways to play around and engage with like the natural world right like i i was able to um for my senior project for my bachelor's create like a constructed wetland to treat acid mine drainage and then in my uh, master's i studied bacteria that we're able to like remove uranium from groundwater. Oh wow! So like I still like I had the civil straight civil background, which is like structural analysis and highway transportation engineering and the like. But I was getting hints that there was like some cool stuff out there where you could bring in the biological world. No, Um, go ahead. Oh, sorry.
1: No, no, you're good.
2: And then, uh, so so then, so I graduate from college and I'm looking for my first job out of college, a first engineering job.
1: And I find
2: an ad for Ducks Unlimited is hiring civil engineers. And like at the time, like I had gone to like banquets and stuff, and I had actually won a, a shotgun, one of the banquets, like a little 20 gauge Greenleaf shotgun. So like I knew about Ducks Unlimited, but had no idea like they hired engineers, I don't know, did you did you know that?
1: No, I didn't, I mean, the biologists for sure, but not uh, not engineers, that's uh, that's interesting. So what were they looking for?
2: So, so, turn, so they're looking for exactly what I wanted. It's like, you gotta be outdoors all the time with like extreme field work, and like you gotta know hydraulics and hydrology, and like you gotta like biology, and like it's like, was like literally written for some job I didn't know existed in my head. But so, that you wanted. It, exactly. And if I would have known this job existed, that would have been my whole uh, – that's, that's all I would have focused all my effort on would be getting this job at some time in the future. So, um, And it turns out, like, Ducks Unlimited, here's some, like, fun facts. Like, Ducks Unlimited started in, like, 1937, and, like, the engineering group was, like – it was mostly engineers at the time working in Canada in, like, the pothole region. Really? So like, like the, the, the history of engineers and Ducks Unlimited go like way back And like you get there. So I get there and what actually happens is you're right. They hire biologists, but they're like the, it's like this special forces team of waterfowl biologists, like the best. And what they do is they pair an engineer with the biologist and you literally work as a team to like chase money, come up with projects from scratch. And then they kick it over to the engineering group who like surveys, designs, permits it, and then gets it constructed. So it's like this like turnkey operation there at Ducks Limited to like put um, wetland projects on the ground. And it was just the most amazing five years I've had. Like, like they kind of, like my boss, Vince Thompson, I'll just give props to him because he's one of my heroes. Um, he just set me loose. Like in, and like, I, I just soaked it up and, Anyway, sorry sorry to pass out a little bit there, but I get excited to talk about this
1: stuff. No, that's awesome because not many people get that opportunity, right? To one, you know, grow up in the outdoors the way you did, you know, know what you wanted to to do or what you wanted to pursue at such a young age to stick with that. And then, you know, you graduate with your, your undergrad and then your master's and then lo and behold, there's a job with a, a conservation organization that you didn't even know was a thing. And then you get that job and then you get to just, you know, kind of make it your own, right. You get to, I mean, I'm sure you had some oversight obviously, but you really got to focus on things that, you know, between yourself and the biologist that you're paired with, you know, I mean, that's what a great way to make a, an immediate impact uh, in, in terms of the outdoors and just wildlife in general.
2: Oh yeah. No, I'm so like, I, I'm so lucky. So for sure.
1: So you did that for five years. What comes next?
2: So then, so at the top, so this is based out of uh, the office I worked in was Western regional office out of Sacramento, California. And at the time, um, my, my future wife, uh, she, we decided to move there together. And then she went to the unit uh, UC Davis there, which is just up the road. And she actually, she's an engineer too. So we're a big, freaking nerds but she got her phd in civil engineering at uc Davis. so then like the next step is like all right i i got to do my dream job you're up and we could have like lived anywhere in the united states like i was priming my getting my head right to like live anywhere and lo and behold she gets a job as a engineering professor at northern arizona university in flagstaff which I knew, I knew about Flagstaff. It was like a mountain outdoor recreation mecca. Yeah. And, and so we ended up in Flagstaff, which was amazing just on face value. But then I found out there's a, a firm here in, in Flagstaff. that's called Natural Channel Design that specializes in river restoration, like cutting edge stuff. Like they were one of the leading folks doing um, river restoration in the southwest. And so I then switched all my focus, like, I want to do everything I can to get this job. So, I, like, I ended up working with them, another great group of folks that just love the work they do and are really good at it. And and I worked there for five years. So, like, I learned well in restoration at Ducks Unlimited and then river restoration at, at Natural Channel Design here in Flagstaff. Um, so that's kind of like that, that, like, kicked off into starting my own company is, like, I felt there was a like I was ready. Like I knew enough about this stuff to like peel off and kind of make it my own. And and that's kind of how I started my company like 10, 10 years ago.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, when it comes to uh, the workforce, you are certainly the exception and not uh, the rule because how, I mean, I don't even know if, I mean, there's, I could, if I really, you know, sat and thought about it, I could probably come up with a few names of people that I know or, or friends that found, you know they're calling immediately after college, right and, and maybe they've bounced around from you know company to company, but the 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 industry I guess uh, the profession has kind of stayed the same, but you get this opportunity and you know I, I can only imagine the amount of um, the amount that you learned in the five years working with DU and then over to national channel. and uh, I would imagine being able to apply some of those same principles that you learned there towards you know river restoration and going all the way back to the beginning you know growing up fly fishing and things like that i mean that's i mean that's uh like that's kind of a match made in heaven right there
2: yeah no like i fully acknowledge constantly that i'm like living the dream so like i know it's it's and, and i should say like i should drop in here like i started my own company but like i really owe it to my wife who's a professor who has a rock solid job because like when you start a new company it is just the diceiest thing and it takes oh, yeah. so long. Like I just feel like now 10 years later, I'm kind of getting my feet under me, <laughs> like really have it mostly kind of sort of figured out. So yeah, I, I got to give props to my wife for like having that rock solid job with good insurance. And, and <laughs> so
1: yeah, shout out to all the wives that uh, let their husbands kind of pursue yeah. their, their passions and their dreams um, all while, bringing home that steady paycheck to allow us to do that.
2: Yeah, no doubt.
1: <laughs> so from the now, – now, growing up, you know, in the outdoors and, and having a father and uh, and an uncle like you did, was conservation something that was kind of talked about or was it more that your your dad and, and your uncle, who you spent, you know, most of your time with outdoors, like did they lead by example or were you guys having these conversations?
2: Um, Like I was thinking back to that. And I think it was more – like I don't think we – explicitly had those conversations is more just experiential like all our everything we did was on public land and that I recognized like that I recognized when we were because like you stare at maps to go hunt and you know where forest service land begins and ends and fish and wildlife service property and where private land begins and we were definitely always on the public side of things so there was an appreciation like I think early about like how you know like you, you realize early on like other countries just don't have this and like we had this and and, and like everybody has it like all my friends and, and family like you have this opportunity so i don't know if there were the explicit conver- conversations about conservation it was more just experiential like we knew um we were on public land and what what an amazing resource that was
1: yeah and that's and and, and i think you know when when we're younger. It's I don't know if we could fully grasp um you know conservation as a whole um I think probably um very similar to uh to your upbringing there is you know you you have that appreciation you you understand you know what the public lands is offering you um and then i, I I've got to believe that there's you know those conversations like throughout the course of like you know we take care of the of the land but that, that word conservation i don't think that when i was young i would have fully grasped that it was a lot of you know whatever we bring with us we bring back if we yep. see trash you know we pick it up you know if we're if we're fishing on an inland lake you know when you know we get the boat trailered we make sure that there's nothing loose in the boat that can fly out you know all these different things that you know 20 30 years later you're like oh so that's, that's conservation, right? Like, I mean, that's certainly a small part of it, but, you know, making sure that we're leaving things better than we found them. Oh, for sure. So, 10 years ago, you decided to start your own company, Oxbow Ecological Engineering. So, tell me about what it is that you do at Oxbow.
2: Sure. And, like, one thing I want to do is, like, define, because there's, like, a couple, like, unpack my company name, because I think it might help, because, like, ecological engineering just isn't, like, civil engineering, most people know about civil, but like ecological engineering in particular is like a relatively new field. And um, it's kind of something that emerged as an idea in like the 1960s and is kind of formalized and defined in the eighties. And it's um, kind of integrate, you integrate ecological principles, which are kind of the interrelationships between the living and the abiotic communities. And then you, you combine that with the existing engineering practices to like create a holistic approach to problem solving, if that makes any sense. So you, you combine the best parts of engineering, and the best parts of eco- ecological studies um, to come up with nature-based solutions.
1: Okay. No, I follow you.
2: And then just, just for an example, like I gave an example too. Like, um, so like so, let's say you have a stream bank that's eroding, just like Kavanaugh, dirt, there's no veg, it's just a big ugly mess. I mean, like so the civil engineering approach in the past would have been to like harden that, like harden that bank, like throw some concrete at it, some rip and gave you on some some car bodies in the case of some of the places in Montana that you've seen. <laughs> um, and and it it, it definitely does a job. it It solidifies the bank. It's not going anywhere. but it doesn't account for like the ecological health that that section of stream provided, right? Um, so, so like the ecological engineering approach would be, uh, you'd probably use what's called soil bioengineering, where you, you use living and non-living, uh, plant materials in combination with like natural materials, um, to stabilize that slope and uh, reduce erosion. And, and you, you end up with something that like blends, if you do it right, it'll like blend seamlessly with the environment. You might not even know anybody did anything. And, and the magic of that is is you just have a more flexible product that, that actually you're going to hold little fish in the nooks and the crannies of the bank. And you're going to have riparian vegetation growing out of the bank that's going to attract, you know, songbirds. So it's like you create this nice little ecological niche niche where before you were just throwing in some riprap and really hardening it. So that's kind of juxtaposition. Comparing the two approaches, I guess. And, yeah. then, and I, I do the latter. Like I do the ecological engineering approach. And in fact, like one of my missions is to like integrate it so seamlessly with the natural forms and processes um, that you might not even know something was done. You just know like that looks right.
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's I mean, that's if someone can't tell that there was work done to it, then, you know, you've done a good job.
2: Yeah. And that's what I'm shooting for. You, you can't always get it. But that's that's my goal. at least. So
1: so how, I mean, you said that after, um, you know, the 10 years of experience that you had gained, you know, right out of college that you felt you were at this position where you could, you know, start your own company. So what was your, your main focus? Um, was it, you know, more like the wetlands, uh, more like the river restoration a combination of the two, what was kind of your focus when you, um, when you launched Oxbow?
2: So it was the whole shebang. So it, it's, like, and and a lot of times they're all interconnected. Like a lot of times you, you can't have a river project where you you can't look at, you need to be, it's like a holistic approach and it's more, and and there's like kind of a new term out there. It's more like the riverscape. It's like all the connected floodplain and wetland and riparian and river components that make up a corridor. Um, they're, they're usually interconnected like hydro hydrologically or hydraulically. So, um, I like, I like the whole shebang, and, and that part of the experience is being able to connect all the different um, components of a river system or a wetland system, system, and also the magic of the job is, like, knowing about the animals that you're, like, I like doing habitat work. Like, I like doing a project that, like, does something, like, reduces erosion, but I like to get that bang for your buck, where if you could reduce erosion and get some habitat for waterfowl, or get some habitat for... You know, endangered little Colorado spine dates, for instance, like that's the win, like trying to like optimize the system to get the most out of it. So
1: what So, what type of people are you working for? Is it like government agencies, um, like uh, local land trusts? I mean, what type of people are you putting these, these plans together? And then after you put the plan together, what does the execution part of it look like?
2: Oh, sure. Um, So, like, I work with a huge consortium of different um, clients, um, which is kind of fun. Like, so I'll work with state agencies in the case of, like, game and fish departments or Department of Fish and Games. So, like, I'll I'll work with with that entity, like Game and Fish, and then I'll work with federal agencies, like Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I I connect with the Army Corps on about every project, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, tribes, like I've, I've been lucky enough to do some projects on the Navajo reservation, um, the Cocopa tribal lands, um, in Southwestern, um, Arizona as well. So tribal agencies, and then, um, also city, like I've worked on projects for like the city of Flagstaff, the city of Las Vegas, New Mexico. And I also work a lot with, uh, watershed alliances, which are like nonprofits that kind of bring together. And focus on one particular watershed. So um, that's kind of who I work with. And then I guess we could get into like how a project is delivered. Is that- yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
2: So, so part, and this is another reason I started my job, uh, started my own company, is like I like doing all the parts of my job, like like all of them. From and and as you get older, like I got, I've been doing this now almost twenty years. And you start to get, as you get older and you get higher up, you start to push down the work to like the younger folks that sure. do the little parts. And like, I wanted to do it all. Like I want to do every single part of it. So like on a, on most of my projects now going 10 years in the ones that I've developed, like I'll go from like helping the agency get the grant to do the work. Um, then the next step is like, once we get the grant or the funding, is to then assess the site. And that's always the funnest part for me because you're in the field for sometimes extended periods of time, waiting in rivers and waiting in wetlands. And and I bring a lot of tools to the game now. Um, as far as assessment's concerned, like I have survey grade uh, GPS units to get like elevations to the Nats' ass where I need them. And then I've recently brought on, like I got my FAA certification and I'm a drone pilot now. Okay. So, like, I use any excuse at all to use my drone (laughs) Um, and it produces the most valuable data. Like the aerial data this produces is just unbelievable. And what I found is really helpful too, is like shooting a video of the site. Cause then you could like, you know, you spend two or three days there and you come back to the office. You're like, wait, what was going on over there? Yeah. Did you refer back to the video? So there's this big assessment period where you try to figure out what is wrong. What are the drivers to the impairment to the system? Um, and then you come back to the office and you work up, up a conceptual design that tries to hit your tar- target, objectives, whether they are to like stabilize the system, reduce erosion or whether it's a target for a specific species of animal. Um, and you combine all that into like a, a conceptual plan. And then you work back and forth with the client to make sure like, are we, are we heading in the right direction? And then once everybody gives a thumbs up, then it's off to final design, and this is like the engineering part where you create a set of detailed construction documents um, and also technical specifications, which are essentially the instructions to the contractor to build the thing. Right. Um, and and I usually those are usually stamped by me, um, which is usually one of the funnest parts of a plan set. You know, you're getting close when you're stamping the plans. It's like buck pucker in time. <laughs> um, and then from there, like. Uh, depending on the project, like I'll also help get the permits. So like that's the next step. You got your final design. Now you need to get the thing permitted, and that can be complicated in a lot of instances. Um, especially working in rivers, you, you gotta work closely with the U.S. Army Corps. Sometimes the Fish and Wildlife Service, if there's endangered species, and the like. Um, so then you're permitted, and you're you're pretty much shovel ready. And and one of the funnest parts and is, is actually doing the construction administration. And that's also a service I provide where I'm out in the field representing the client. I'm the eyes on the ground. I'm working closely with the contractor to just make sure we get put on the ground what we need. Um, and so that gets more field time for me and more time hanging out with contractors. Like a lot of times the construction contractors are just, like I got an engineering mind and I've been doing this a while so I think I know how these things are built but like just dealing with contractors they're just a lot of times just brilliant the way they look at things completely different and have their brain works in different ways and just the innovation that comes out of a lot of these projects is is kind of cool so it's from conception to completion that's my ideal project and a lot of the times that's that's the projects I'm putting on the ground at this point
1: yeah you mentioned a couple things in there <clears throat> one the um you know working with the contractors and how you know, you as an engineer, you know, your mind works a certain way and you, you have a certain idea of how you want to, or, or how you think things should be done to get to the end, the end result, the the final product. But then you get these contractors who have probably worked on a lot of, you know, varying types of projects, right? Maybe in, in some way, shape or form related to restoration or rebuilding or, or something like that with, you know, wetlands, um, you know, river restoration, anything like that. But I I experienced the same thing. I I previously used to work in in manufacturing, and I'm not an engineer, but I worked with a lot of engineers. I worked with a lot of machinists and things like that. And it's amazing how just given their experience and that I would almost, you know, like like contractors, manufacturers, like they're almost like fixers, right? Because there's there's inevitably going to to be roadblocks. There's going to be problems, things that... That come apart, that were you know, or, or a plan doesn't work quite the way it, it was laid out for whatever reason, and you know they can take a step back and be like, well, what if we do this? And they just that experience and that that problem solving instinct that a lot of those uh, those guys and gals have is just it's remarkable. And it's and and then once everyone agrees to whatever maybe the the fix it plan is, kind of come together. I mean, it's it's a thing of beauty to watch because. They, they just, they know what to do, how to do it. And it's a way that a lot of other people don't even conceptualize.
2: Oh, for sure. And what I find, like what I find too, that same thing, like working with the contractor and like picking their brains, like a lot of times, like their ideas are better than mine, honestly. So like, <laughs> but then they take some ownership of it. Like then we're all on the same team and it just makes for such a smoother project when we're on the same team instead of a contentious. Like, I remember, like, starting out at Delta Unlimited when I was a rookie, right? Like, I was always go, like, it was just such a contentious relationship. It's because, honestly, I was an idiot. Like, I was like, <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't even know. And I had, they sent me out in the field with a set of plans, right? So, like, I was, it, I've learned so much um, from working with contractors, and hopefully things go smoother now that I've been doing this a little while, so.
1: Yeah. They think, yeah, when you're young and, and yeah, you're, you're kind of put in charge of that. You, you think like, we've got to stick to the plan, right? Like this is what (laughs) was laid out by everyone involved up to this point. So this is what we've got to do. And yeah, that, that just comes with experience. It comes with time on the job and things like that. And you're, you're right though. I can see how, when, when the contractors have some skin in the game, you know, when they feel like, um, you know, that they're, they're being included, um, and talked to, instead of talked at, you know, like, okay, this is the way we've got to do it. And, We've got to do it this way because this is what I said, and I'm in charge. Like, it's amazing um, once you get that buy in from everyone involved. It, it it's just such a harmonious relationship, and the the end result is is usually way better than it would have been otherwise. Oh, for sure. So, now let's say you, you've been at this for 10 years, and what is, or what has been your experience to see, you know, the real results of these projects? Is it, you know, a year, is it two years? I mean, how long before the work is, or how long after the work is completed are you starting to see those results that that everyone involved anticipated seeing?
2: Oh yeah. So that it, it really is project dependent, but I've had some projects recently that like we got like Insta results, which was just the, so we, um, so this is just a project example. Like, so so long story short is it takes it, it's really project dependent and what you're wanting to do. Like a project that where you're doing, where it's really uh, native planting focused. Like that's the focus. You have to be patient because like it takes a while for like a cottonwood to get above um, where you know an elk can can eat it, or a beaver to take it down. So like you got to protect. The riparian vegetation and monitor it so like the projects like that take time So with patience like it's five to ten years on on a project like that but where some of the projects where it's like a, such a messed up site and you go in and kind of aggressively you fix it um like you could see some results pretty quick and like one project i had where it's a small it was a smaller project really cool where there was a little colorado river there was a, a meander of it pretty sizable meander that had been levied off and disconnected from the river and uh they've been dry for like 34 years and the idea was like let's strategically remove that levee and reconnect that section of floodplain and while we're at it let's put some fish habitat in there so we dug out so we removed that chunk of levee, and then we put the meander bin right where we think it was based off like historical photos and then we dug out hogged out some really deep pools good fish habitat laid in log structures to create some habitat and um the the fish uh the game and fish biologist went out like not more than i think six months later and the pools we had were holding tons of fish really and and they were actually endangered uh or or threatened lower colorado river spine days so like that was a big like those give you the warm fuzzy feelings where like we we built the thing based off guidance from game and fish biologists and sure enough it it works like instant results are always really fun
1: so yeah i mean those are the kind of success stories and i've noticed this um you know just since you and i started talking but the energy the passion that you have for what you're doing and for the results that are coming out of it like it's it's inspiring it's because you know hearing how excited you are about conservation and you know or you know conservation be kind of a, a byproduct of of what you're doing at oxbow is i think i mean that's that's what the listeners i i feel like and i'm gonna speak for for all of them that are listening here is like that's that's what makes people want to go out and and get involved with local organizations is is hearing these success stories and you know you, you're just one guy with a company, right? I mean, imagine when, you know, you have, you know, these large conservation organizations that are, you know, seeking volunteers and, you know, you get 20, 30 volunteers and, and the amount of work that they're able to do in, you know, in a long weekend or, you know, even just a Saturday morning or something like that, whether it's pulling fence or picking up trash or, you know, um, whatever the case is, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, and that's the, the side of conservation that, that I absolutely love to hear and talk about.
2: Oh, for sure. And like I may be getting ahead, is this is where like two percent for conservation, like my company's a business member, and like I, that's where like the rubber hits the road for me. I get to see it from like it gives me the opportunity to see it from both sides, right? So I'm this, so I get to like put these bigger projects on the ground, but it gives me the opportunity to get out in the field and actually get my hands dirty, because like normally on the engineering projects, my professional liability. <laughs> would be hammering me if I was out there <laughs> moving anything at all. So like, I'm very, I have to protect myself when I'm on the site, but when I'm volunteering, I can get my hands dirty. And you're exactly right. Like I just, I volunteered a couple weeks weekends ago with uh, the Arizona Elk Society, which is a local conservation firm that does great on the ground stuff. And like, there was about 20 of us and we built 32 rock structures in a day. Wow. There's 20 of us and like moving tons and tons of rock and just the hard work and the passion and just, everybody was just so happy to be there. And it was, it, it's inspiring. So like, I, like 2% gives me the oppor- uh, opportunity to see it kind of from both sides.
1: Yeah. So how was it that you learned about 2%? Oh,
2: I think I want to say, cause like I'm a connoisseur of outdoor, especially hunting gear. So I, I'm I'm positive I saw it on First Light and Sika's, uh website back in like 2018, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Sitka being the founding business partner of Two Percent, the founding yeah, the founding business member of Two Percent, and and really, uh, without getting too sidetracked, I mean, there's a, a group of indi- individuals who were at the time working with Sika, um that really had this idea uh, for Two Percent, and to see where it has come in, gosh, I think we're, I think we're at, I think two percent has been around for six years, Jared. If you're listening, I apologize if I'm butchering that, but the <laughs> the amount that two percent and and all of the amazing businesses that have been able to do for conservation and just you know, again, I'll I'll refer to six years. I mean, it's just it's incredible, right? And the fact that there's so many um, different organizations out there that put the same emphasis on conservation as you know a company like oxbow that you know what they're doing is you know is conservation work in and of itself right but to to take that one step further and you know you're doing this for a living but now on top of this you're you're volunteering your time with uh, a group like the arizona elk society to to build all these rock structures in a weekend um is I, mean, I, I can't say enough good things about it. i mean i feel like i sound like a broken record sometimes uh talking about it but it's it's that type of stuff that, that we as outdoorsmen and outdoors women and hunters and anglers that we need to hear that, that we need to keep us inspired and keep fighting the good fight. Oh, for sure. For sure. So in, in your experience, what has been, you know, maybe the, the more difficult side of what you do? Is it, you know, is it the kind of the the legality dealing with, you know, permitting and stuff like that? Or is it sometimes just trying to come up with a good game plan for, you know, for your customers or for these different organizations?
2: Um,
1: that's a great question.
2: At least, at least like, like part of this is like, I'm a, I'm a, it's probably, I'm a bad person to ask because I literally like every part of my job. I even like doing invoicing. I do my own accounting. Like I just, love all this part but like each project has its own like that said, like each project has its own challenges like and and honestly like you kind of hit the nail on the head like permitting is usually where things get hung up right right so you got, especially on projects where i mean a lot of this time it's like a circular reference where i have a project now i'm working on in um eastern arizona where we're trying to build better habitat for the new mexico meadow jumping mice it's just like endangered little mouse. It hibernates almost all year, like nine months out of the year. It's like opens its eyes for a couple months and then heads right back to hibernation. But but they live in riparian zones. So, Fish and Wildlife Service and Game and Fish want to improve habitat for these mice. Um, there's not a lot of them out there. But the key is in order to improve the habitat for them, you got to get in there and muck around a little bit. So like you literally put the mice in danger. By trying
1: to save them,
2: improve their habitat. So, like that particular project is like everybody wants to do by, best by the mice. So the, the 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 permitting process is just long. Like everybody wants to get it right. We don't want to hurt any mice trying to save the mice.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 I've got to imagine. I mean, that that sounds like a, a fairly specific instance. But there's not a lot of instances like that where in order to restore the population, to, to improve the habitat that you're also putting, you know, said species in danger in the process. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's a, that, I, I see that being a really big challenge, especially with, with, uh, an animal as small as a, as a mouse, right? I mean, geez, it's oh, yeah. one false step and it's game over, right?
2: Yes. And, and, we, but you find this a lot, particularly in the Southwest, like, riparian areas and river areas and wetland areas are just so hammered. There's like none of them left. So all the species that depend on them are kind of struggling. So whenever you're doing work in the Southwest, no matter what, there's one or two species that like, you, you got to be careful that you don't want to make it worse for them because they're already having a hard enough time. So like that, that particular mouse one is very like, it's, it's the diciest one for sure. But it comes up with like Southwestern willow flycatcher, yellow-billed cuckoo, all these birds and and also like Chiricahua leopard frogs that depend on wetland and riparian habitats to survive. And you got to get in there to make their habitat better. It's dicey for sure. Yeah.
1: And well, you mentioned something uh, almost at the start of the conversation when, you know, taking on these projects and, and doing a lot of this work that... Especially in in an instance where it's um, kind of species specific, uh, whether it's, you know, habitat or or whatever that you're trying to repair, restore, rebuild, that the effects that it's going to have on everything around it um, isn't even sometimes I'd imagine taken into account, but just by the work you're doing for one has a positive impact on everything else around it. And that's, that's another great part about conservation. And some of these, um, you know, very species specific um, orgs like RMEF or, you know, the Mule Deer Foundation, DU. Um, you know the work that you're doing for, you know, essentially, you know, elk. Um, how that's going to help the pollinators? Uh, it's going to help, you know, game birds and things like that with restoring or opening up habitat. And the the ripple effect is something that oftentimes is is not really able to be quantified.
2: Oh, for sure, and that's the coolest part. Is like granted every project has a couple of keystone species species that you're targeting but like I'm always looking at like how to how we just optimize it for as many species as possible now really fun, a fun challenge
1: oh yeah absolutely so speaking of or going back to two percent what are some of the organizations that that you're volunteering your your time and dollars to
2: so so volunteer wise like I've I mean, it's been few and far between. Like I, I joined Two Percent right around peak COVID, so like the first part of my volunteering stuff was like taking a trash bag with me and me and my boys picking up trash and barbed wire. So yeah, now that now that things have fell down COVID-wise, knock on wood, like some opportunities are open up. And uh, one of the cooler ones I've done was with the Arizona Game and Fish Department, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and Trout Unlimited did a fish stocking event for the Gila, uh, trout, which is an endangered species. And the kicker was you had to hike a bucket full of water and aerated fish, like five miles up a mountain and then dump them up there. So like, that was one where literally I was like, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm getting older. So like I had to train for this one, um, for months to to be able to, to get my mind right for, you know, taking 40, 40 pounds of, of water and fish up a mountain. So like, those are the ones I'm like, that was so exciting and so fulfilling to drop those fish in that stream where they hadn't been for a while. And, um, and those are the projects I'm trying to look for. Like, like wherever I can help out a nonprofit for volunteering, uh, those are the ones I'm hunting for.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really cool. I mean, uh, again, a byproduct of, of being able to talk to so many cool people that have a ton of different experiences on the podcast is the the volunteer work that they've been able to do. And um, I think I actually just referenced this uh, in a recent episode, but uh gentlemen from um, Pennsylvania flew out to Washington to help transfer mountain goats from one range to another. Like, Oh, no kidding. Yeah, just um, I think they were... I, I'm not even going to try to, to recall it, uh, exact, but I, cause I know I'll be wrong, but yeah, essentially, yeah. Like got a freezer truck and, you know, helped move these, these mountain goats from one region. Um, I think maybe it was in like Olympus, Na- Olympus national park, or they were moving them out of the park to a different range or vice versa. And he just saw an opportunity for volunteers, literally called a buddy. They hopped on a plane flew out there, did the work, hopped on a plane and flew back to Pennsylvania. I mean, like these are, these are the stories that people need to hear because, you know, while that is, is certainly, uh, a big uh, kind of a grand gesture in terms of volunteering. And even like your, the, the example you just mentioned with, um, you know, carrying those fish, you know, 40 pounds of fish into a stream where they haven't been in a long time. I mean, those are the things that, that people need to hear about because again, um, they're inspiring and they, they, they make people want to get out and, and get involved. And even if it's like you said, you know, taking your boys to, to a river or to a a trailhead and just picking up trash along the way. I mean, all that stuff counts. All of it counts.
2: Oh, for sure. And just setting that good example where they're like, got their eyes peeled for trash and barbed wire now. (laughs) Yeah. We stick with them for a while.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those little things. And that's kind of how, you know, I have, I have two young kids, they're five and they're three and having those conversations about you know even just in our neighborhood you know if we see if we see trash on the ground we pick it up well why do we pick it up well because an animal could eat it and it's not good for animals it could you know destroy you know the habitat that these animals live in they are like what's habitat right so the curiosity of uh, of young kids is is really cool to see because all those things that that we just know and kind of take for granted you know, the younger generation doesn't know that. And it's up to us to make sure that, that we're conveying that as best as possible to them. Oh, for sure. So <laughs> George, real quick, before I, I let you get out of here. um, I mean, we're, we're smack dab. We're late. I mean, shoot, we're almost September here. So a lot of hunting seasons have opened in the West. Do you have any big trips or anything like that planned for this fall that you're looking forward to?
2: Yeah. So like, so one of the things we're, we're excited about in the near future, like coming up Labor Day weekend, is we're going to go fishing in um, the White Mountains of Arizona. And um, our, the, what we're going to be trying to catch is Apache trout, which are these endemic species that only exist in Arizona. And there's a few spots you could catch them. And my oldest son, who's just a fishing, he's, he that's a lot of what he thinks about is fishing, has been talking about this for years and we're finally going to get out and try to catch some apache trout so that's like the near term and then um i got a turkey hunt coming up in october it's the first time i've actually drawn a turkey tag so i need to start doing some research
1: yeah the fall turkey tag that's a good one
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no i'm super stoked and then um i got a uh mule deer tag uh archery mule deer tag in december and it's actually a, a weird one it's actually Flagstaff has a municipal unit just that kind of runs along the buffer of the city, so it's like an actually archery doe tag. So that's a new one for me too. So I got a month to try to fill that tag, and literally I could walk out the back door a mile and you're you're hunting. So that that'll be a neat one.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Those, uh, now I don't know <clears throat> as far as Flagstaff and, and everything goes, like if you would consider those city deer or if, I mean, is it still, is it kind of rate, right, you know, maybe a bit more rural, but still kind of on the border of, of city and rural?
2: It's kind of in that border. Okay. I mean, or at least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> I'm not seeing somebody's pet.
1: <laughs> yeah. Someone, someone's got a name for it that they see every day. Right. I've exactly. got some, I mean, I'm surrounded where I, where I live. I'm surrounded by a lot of woods. It's a subdivision, but there's still, you know, every, most people kind of back up to, to woods and, and there's, um, a neighbor I can see, I can see their house out my window. They're probably three or four houses down and they, they get deer in their backyard and they found out that, you know, that I'm a hunter and, you know, they, yeah, they they do all the things that you wouldn't really want to see. Like they're dumping bags of corn out there for them. Like these, like they've got names for these deer, you know, that of course me. I'm like, oh yeah, I shot a deer last weekend. I don't know what the name was, right? Like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of being that guy, but it's, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting um, how that how that that whole situation and, and kind of uh, relationship between you know, quote unquote, city deer and and people have kind of evolved over over recent years. The more the urban sprawl continues to go,
2: oh for sure, and like I, I don't know, like those those deer should not be worried because I'm the worst. Ever. Like, so. But that'll <laughs> still. thing I've taken up recently is like like a productive midlife crisis is like trying out bow hunting, and it's been so fun. Like I've learned because you're on the same playing field as the animal, and it's you just gotta you learn a whole new set of techniques, and it's been
1: super fun. It's humbling, isn't it? Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. As long as you're you're going out there and you're having fun and you're continuously learning, I mean that's that's what it's all about. So, George, where, if, if people wanted to, to learn more about Oxpo, um, where can they find you? Where can they find the business at?
2: Um, you can find me at my website, which is uh, www.oxbow-eco-eng.com. And there's some good, like I haven't kept it as updated as I should, but there's a lot of pretty pictures on there. If you want to see some of the project areas I've worked on and some of the folks I've worked with. So that's a good place to start.
1: Awesome. Well, George, thank you a ton for, for joining me today. I'm glad that uh, after a few missteps over the past week that we were able to sit down because this was uh, definitely well worth the wait. Thank you.
2: Uh, no worries. Thanks for your patience, Marcus.
1: Yeah. All right, George. Well, good luck um, on your fly fishing trip, chasing turkey and uh, filling that mule deer tag.
2: Good deal. Thanks, Thanks a ton, Marcus. Take All right. Easy. Take care
1: all right well there you have it uh, again thank you to george for joining me today on the podcast i would also like to thank the partners of the podcast we have Hardside hydration stone glacier go hunt wild rivers coffee outdoor class and as always two percent for conservation guys do me a favor go out and support these brands these are incredible brands with incredible products Um, support them, help support conservation in the process and support the brands that are help making this podcast possible as well. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you're going to see all the certified brands, excuse me, that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also highly encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only uh, positive conservation driven content uh, that's going to land in your feed. So you'll enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. I appreciate it. Um, Be sure to head over to theaverageconservationist.com, pick up some gear, help support conservation in the progress. Uh, And if you haven't, subscribe, rate, review all that good stuff, uh, wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Um, Yeah. So until next week, Uh, actually, you know what? Have a safe and happy uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, Enjoy time outdoors before, uh, you know, every kids are back in school and all that good stuff and just uh, send summer out with a bag. So stay safe and remember that conservation starts with you.